Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, February 26th, we're studying Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 39. When Jesus withdraws into Gentile territory, he is met by an unlikely woman, a Canaanite woman, who is looking for help from the son of David. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Tim Cook. Pastor Cook serves as the pastor at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Millbank, South Dakota. Pastor Cook, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Glad to be back. Pastor Cook, as we get started this morning, give us some context. We're dropping into the middle of Matthew chapter 15. Where have we been in Matthew's gospel that'll help us with today? with today's text. Uh, sure. Jesus just was in a verbal spat with the Sadducees and the Pharisees, uh, or at least the Pharisees, uh, concerning what makes a person clean or unclean. And so they have been swimming in the waters of uh, Jewish uh, civil and ceremonial law. And um, Jesus, uh, it speaks of uh, that which comes out of a person is what makes them clean, uh, rather than that which they take in. And then, uh, so set in sharp contrast to that, uh, Jesus is now going to interact with a woman who uh, is not Jewish. Uh, and so her uh, concern for such uh, strictures are not um, prevalent, or she's not there, she just doesn't care. Um, and yet what we discover is uh, she receives the grace uh, that the Israelites should be waiting for from their Christ, um, further confirming that uh, salvation and righteousness does not come by observance of the law. Hmm. So is, is it fair to say that, that this woman that we'll meet in today's text, she would have been unclean? according to the Pharisees and scribes who've just come to Jesus. But based on what Jesus has said about what cleanness and uncleanness is, he's, he's going to recognize her as one worth from her heart is something that is clean. Correct. Yes, that is a, that is a fair thing to say. So she should be uh, clean and of no value and to be rejected outright on account of her uh, dietary uh, restrictions at, at the minimum. Um, and, uh, and yet she speaks of, uh, she exhibits a faith uh, that is lacking from those who should get it. So, um, and by get it, I mean those who should understand it, like the Pharisees. Let's go ahead and meet this woman, then let's read the text today in Matthew chapter 15, beginning at verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, 
Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them, so that the crowd wondered. When they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. That's the text for today, Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 39. So Pastor Cook, Jesus, at the beginning of our text, he, he leaves this confrontation that he's had with the Pharisees and scribes. He goes to the district of Tyre and Sidon. He meets a surprising, well, why is it surprising that maybe Jesus goes to that locale to begin with? Why, why is Tyre and Sidon an important location? It is uh well, uh, the Sidonians don't have a good reputation in the history of Israel. Uh, King Ahab married a woman from there named Jezebel. And so there's a lot of uh, strife and conflict between the people of Israel and the Sidonians. So that's always in the background. Uh, Tyre and Sidon is uh, there on the shores. It's coastal territory on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea, and it would be north of the Sea of Galilee, if my memory serves correct. Uh, north, yeah. Uh, so Jesus is, uh, has, uh, well, he's going to be moving toward Jerusalem. And so it's, it's odd because it's the opposite direction from Jerusalem. Um, and uh, I would say that's why it's, it's odd. It's not only is it not Jewish, but it's, it's the opposite direction than where we would expect him to go uh, as the Son of God. And so he, he meets, Matthew draws our attention to the woman that he meets. He says, behold, a Canaanite woman comes out. And what, why does Matthew draw our attention to this woman? I would imagine uh, she stands in a sharp contrast to the previous interaction with the Pharisees. Uh, so that's the first thing. Also, it's possible that Matthew is drawing our attention to her because uh, she came out of the city. So she went out of her way uh, to meet him. So in the sense that Jesus, you know, Jesus is going out of his way. Tyre and Sidon is not on his way to anything. Um, this woman uh, similarly goes out of her way, uh, but she has a motive for uh, what she's up to. Um, so she is, yeah, uh, leaving behind something to, to come meet Jesus, Allah. Seek first, uh, you know, ask and be given to you, seek and you will find, that kind of language. Seek the Lord while he may be found. 
she she seeks him out. And she names him the Lord and the Son of David. What is what is significant about the way that this woman addresses Jesus? There's some level of uh, awareness of the culture, the expectation, and the history of Israel. Um, I would uh, the the word Lord can very much be more of a sir, a term of respect. I don't think it's particularly significant that she calls him Lord. Um, I, I don't know that, for example, when we confess Jesus as Lord, we're making a very clear uh, declaration about who Jesus is to us. Uh, I don't think it's that weighted here. Um, might just be a cultural term of respect, Lord, Sir, uh, along those lines. But there is there is absolutely, you don't accidentally say the son of David. This is not a common title. Um, so the text doesn't tell us how this woman is aware that it is significant to be the son of David, and yet this is what she uses. Um, so at the very least, uh, she is taking what she has heard about uh, the Israelites as a light to the nations, um, and uh, she has heard the story of uh, David, and she knows that to be of David is significant. So it's definitely a... Um, she's, uh, she's using her best bullet first, so to speak, <laughs> uh, which probably isn't an analogy that helps many people, but um, she's, she's not holding anything back. She's giving, um, she's using it all right away. What what does it mean then to confess Jesus as the son of David, whether whether for this woman particularly or just in general, why is addressing Jesus as the son of David such a significant title for him? Right, because God is a God of promise. And so if you read through the Old Testament, you get uh, these uh, myriad of promises of the coming Christ, the savior of the people. Um spoken first to Satan in the Garden of Eden that the offspring of the woman would crush his head. Uh, But then it it very much becomes uh, specific to a people uh, at the call of Abraham. And so the promise given to Abraham is given to Isaac, is given to Jacob. And then that same promise and covenant working through the tribe of Judah is given to David. So David has the promise that his offspring will reign on the throne forever. And so to be called the son of David is to elicit some form of um, acknowledgement concerning royalty and the promises of God of old. How, how do you think, and, and maybe this is a bit of speculation, but I, I think there might be something we could say. How is it that a Canaanite woman from the region of Tyre and Sidon comes to use a term that's so specific to the people of Israel? I think your guess is as good as mine. Uh, I uh, I wish uh, sometimes I wish they had the internet uh, because uh, when I put myself in the woman's shoes, her daughter is possessed by a demon, and um, so we don't know what uh, steps have been taken uh, to um, resolve that issue preceding this encounter with Christ. But uh, any parent who has had a child diagnosed with a sickness or suffering some form of affliction, you become an expert very quickly. 
And so uh, I knew a family in my previous parish. They had no desire to become an expert in uh, delivering shots of insulin to their young daughter. But when she's diagnosed with type uh, 2 or type 1 diabetes, uh, they became experts in that very quickly. And so now we have a woman whose daughter is possessed by a demon or afflicted by afflicted and oppressed by a demon. And uh, I think you see a mother who cares for her daughter. She becomes an expert. Uh, she's grasping on to hope, uh, and she is heard. Um, and we don't know how, but she's at least aware of a salvation, a rest, uh, an alleviation that can be found in the Messiah of Israel. And so that would be... Um, this this is my this is my best guess, um, but she has uh, identified in the God of Israel uh, some form of relief or salvation for her daughter, and and she's recognized Jesus as connected to all of this by calling him the son of David. Here's tell tell me what you think of this, Pastor Cook. And maybe this is the first time you've heard this. I don't remember who who shared this with me. But but someone has, has drawn a connection between this woman here in Matthew 15 and the widow of Zarephath in 1 Kings chapter 17 who is who is sure. from the region of Sidon. And right. and there in that account, you know, it's the time of the famine in Israel in the northern kingdom. And and so Elijah goes to this house and and he tells her to make me a cake first and then make something for you and your son. And, of course, everybody is fed from all this. And so the, what, what I, I want, and I, there's no way to prove this, I know. But, but what I, I like to think is that this woman from Tyre and Sidon has heard this in the past, that this word of God that went to Tyre and Sidon in, what was that, the 800s B.C.? With Elijah, that word stayed there. Even if it was in a small way, it stayed there. And this woman is, is starting to put together, she's connecting dots. And, and again, I know there's no way of proving that, but I, that intrigues me. And, and so, I don't yeah, know, you feel free to respond to that. There's if you a want. lot of parallels there to say nothing about the, the food connection as we move on in the text. Um, but... Uh, yeah, in, in the way that communities often have a memory of an interaction with, um, I went to the seminary in St. Louis, and it didn't take long before I would encounter somebody who knew somebody when the World's Fair happened there in 1904. Or, and so there's just kind of this enduring uh, cultural community memory. And uh, yeah, Elijah there, we know the Lord's uh, word has significant power. It's possible. Uh, I think you could uh, make a good homiletical move with that. So that that'll right. preach. That's that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so this woman, it, she and, and I appreciate the picture that you paint of her as as a mother who who cares about her daughter. Her daughter is oppressed by a demon, and so she is going to do whatever she can to help this daughter. And she recognizes in Jesus someone who at least has the potential to help. And, and she's connected him as the son of David, this connected to the God of Israel, the one who, who will rule over the kingdom forever. Whether or not, again, how much of this she understands or comprehends, we maybe don't know that. But this is, these are some of the connections that she's making. And to, to hear these words from a Canaanite woman is, is striking, as we've said. I think Jesus' response, though, probably floors us even more. 
How does Jesus respond to this woman? Uh, he doesn't. Uh, so he gives her the, the silent treatment. Um, the text says, but he did not answer her a word. So um, that alone is um, seemingly harsh, <laughs> though this is not without precedent in the Old Testament either. Uh, King Saul, uh, after the kingdom has been taken away from him, uh, he uh, speaks to the Lord, but the Lord is uh, silent. He does not answer him. Um, likewise, we're told that the word of God is rare in the day of uh, Samuel, so preceding that. So the, it's not without precedent that the Lord um, hears even the cries of his people, uh, that he is named and claimed as his own, um, and he does not answer them. So, um, But he doesn't, he doesn't answer her, and this is of frustration to uh, the disciples um, who uh, come and plead uh, <laughs> out of... Uh, annoyance, uh, please, uh, you know, send her, send her away for she's crying out after her, after us, which is a, it's an indictment against the disciples to be sure. Uh, they do not have compassion for her in her situation. The disciples are thinking of themselves. She is inconveniencing the, um, their lives and their thought and their conversations and so they don't say, Lord, please help this woman. Uh, they, they, ask, they ask the Lord to cast her away, um, have, nothing, have nothing to do with her. And um, so Jesus then replies to them, that is to the disciples, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, at which point she approaches Jesus further uh, and kneels before him, uh, adopting the posture of humility, and she says, Lord, help me. Um, so this is already odd, uh, by any standard of measurement. Um, then Jesus's reply is, uh, at best characterized as harsh. Uh, he says it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. So he is, he's calling her or identifying her as a dog. And, uh, I don't care how you try to spin this. Uh, it is not uh, it's not a term of respect um, or endearment in any way. E even if you're a dog person and you love dogs very much and they are near and dear to your heart, uh, that, is, that is not how it would be heard then in that situation. So a, a dog is not man's best friend in this situation. How, how should we understand Jesus' address to her as a dog? Uh, well... <laughs> That's a good question. I would say put um, his address to her as a dog is. Uh, dogs are, uh, children take precedent over dogs, just as he said. That's not right to take the, what belongs to the children and give it to the dogs. Um, so he says, I have, uh, I have work to do uh, among groups of people um, as the Messiah. And uh, it will follow the order for which uh, the Lord has ordered salvation. And uh, it would be inappropriate for me to take that which rightly belongs to uh, the children of Israel uh, and give it away to someone else. But this, this reply um, does not deter the woman. And frankly, I don't even think it actually, I don't think it shocks her, um, to be frank. 
Um, I think she may have expected such a thing or at least recognized, yeah, this is how Jews have always treated us. I never suggested that I was a Jew, um, and which is what allows her to then latch on to Jesus' own analogy and say, yeah, that's fine, but the dogs eat the crumbs that come from the master's table. So they, they have their, their portion too. So she's not asking for first course. Uh, she's happy to take the leftovers. Um, and, um, and in the same way, then we, it, this is very reminiscent of that, uh, Psalm, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Mm. So she's just very much, yeah, no, I'm, I'm satisfied with the crumbs. And that's an incredible statement of faith where you and I or the average Christian might think of a miraculous healing as being the best of God's gifts. Uh, this woman identifies as being, you know, uh, something you can more or less do without. Uh, it's, just, it's just the crumbs. It's just the fringe. It's the almost unforgotten <laughs> part uh, of what Christ is here to do, and, uh, and she's happy to have that. And so Jesus, it's, it doesn't, the text does not say what Jesus thinks, right? It doesn't say Jesus marveled as we've, we've seen him do before, but, but what, from his words, what is, what is Jesus' response to this woman's faith? He says, uh, woman, great is your faith, be it done for you as you desire. So this is, is that the response you were asking about or were you yes, still on yes. the, okay, yeah. So, uh, he, he, I, Identifies, yep, great is your faith. So he, he lauds her, uh, he praises her, and uh, he speaks well of her and grants, uh, answers her prayer as she desires. Hmm. So um, that is a, uh endorsement of her uh, tenacious tr- trust uh, in the God of Israel, hmm. the son of David. Hmm. So, thinking about this this account as a whole, then Pastor Cook, what what are we what are we to make of it? What are we to do with? It? Is this a situation of faith being tested? Is this a what what do how do we take this text and use it as a whole? Uh, I would take it as uh, God's gifts of grace are for all people. Uh, I don't know that uh, the church always has. I think we tend to undervalue the Jew-Gentile distinction um, as the people of God. You can't read the epistles very long before there's something coming up about the the Jews and the Gentiles. So there's very much an us-versus-them mentality that is not appropriate to the reign of God. And so uh, the Lord is, uh, you know, her faith is one that recognizes this um, so she recognizes the order, too. So it's, it's a both-and situation. She's not denying the order of salvation, first the Jew, then the Gentile. Uh, but it is still then the Gentile. <laughs> and, and so that's the thing she's holding on to. It's like, we get ours, too. Um, and so God's salvation is not uh, reserved for a select group. Uh, but rather is manifested among the the weakest, the needy, and the most unlikely of candidates. This is not the first unlikely candidate you've encountered in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, you already see odd things occurring with the visit of the Magi. Uh, you have the centurion who is uh, not of uh, 
Jewish background, uh, being praised for his faith as well. So it's an, this attitude of Christ where he takes uh, what the world knows and flips it on its head. The first will be last and the last will be first. Uh, here you have, she has so many check marks against her, so many strikes, I guess you would say, so many strikes against her. Uh, she's uh, she's a woman. She's from Tyre and Sidon. Uh, she's uh, approaching. I'm just. There's no way, right? There's no way this person is receiving any benefits from God, uh, and yet she does. And uh, and so there therein lies a significant amount of of hope, uh, especially for you, know, you and I, um, and pr- the predominant audience. I would imagine that is listening to this are not of Jewish origin. So we are Gentiles by, by ethnicity. And, uh, you know, we should also, uh, desire, uh, and seek out, uh, and go out of our way to receive the quote unquote crumbs of Christ, uh, his Hmm. gifts of grace. Hmm. What, what are those, those crumbs, Pastor Cook, with just about a minute left here on this side of the break. Great question. Uh, the crumbs are predominantly uh, the forgiveness of sins, uh, the adoption and the adoption of sons. So we become co-heirs with Christ, adopted uh, by him through our baptisms, which then gives us the forgiveness of sins and the assurance of salvation, a promise of victory over uh, sin, death, and the devil. And so don't look to your Savior to do something uh, which he has uh, not promised to do. He's called it. Uh, elsewhere in Matthew, uh, you will call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Um, and so those are, those are the crumbs that we're going to latch on to. Um, and those are ours by right. Uh, and furthermore, you know, the other blessings that God will give upon us are as numerous as well, as much as you can count as we would do in the first article of the Apostles' Creed or the fourth petition of the Lord's Prayer, all that has to do with the support needs of the body. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide KFUO. We're looking at the end of Matthew chapter 15 with Pastor Tim Cook. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron on this Wednesday, February 26th. We're looking at Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 39 with Pastor Tim Cook of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Millbank, South Dakota. Pastor Cook, prior to the break, we, we've been looking at this Canaanite woman that Jesus meets in the region of Tyre and Sidon. And one of the points that we skipped over, but it's important, is that the fact her daughter is oppressed by a demon. Maybe that's a bit unusual to think about. This woman's already in Gentile territory. She's got a daughter oppressed by a demon. What What's going on here? Well, the daughter is being oppressed by a demon is what's going on. And... Um, 
The reason why this is probably a helpful point to uh, consider before moving on or reflecting on is that this is uh, <laughs> this, the the woman is looking for help from spiritual oppression. So if we want to think of uh, you know we have this term the church militant. Uh, we have Paul tell us we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities, the prince of power of this present darkness. Uh, that kind of that kind of concept. So we are always um, under assault uh, from from the devil. He's a very he's a very real uh, enemy. And what has Christ come to rescue us from? Sin, death, and and the power of the devil. And so this is what we see at play. We see God doing this um, when. The promise of God to Abraham that by his offspring all the nations would be blessed. Uh, the promise isn't that all the nations will become you know, wealthy. It's not a prosperity issue. It's that they will receive the benefits of um, the eternal Son of God who does deliver on these things. And so uh, this is the very kind of thing you should Look to Jesus for help from even today. Uh, some kind of spiritual oppression you would appeal to. You would appeal to Jesus Christ. Uh, this is certainly uh, faithful to uh, the testimony of Scripture, Old and New Testament. And and even even his crumbs. I mean, we talked a little bit about that at the end of the, the last segment. His crumbs, though, even those are are more than enough. When when we talk about crumbs from the Lord. Even these are are a full feast and and more than than we need. The overabundance of his gifts, I think, is something that that you see here. That this woman would come to Jesus and call rescuing from demonic oppression a crumb. I mean, right. that that's amazing. But but it's 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 more than we need. Yeah, it is, and we should, at the risk of getting a little cheesy on this, um, <laughs> crumbs are of the same substance as the main course. It's not like crumbs are of a different category. Uh, you know, a crumb of bread is still bread in all its breadness. So um, <laughs> I think of this uh, phrase about um, congregations that was, I don't know where I picked it up. A local congregation is not the whole church, but it's holy church, uh, as in W-H-O-L-L-Y. It is holy church, entirely church, but not the whole church. And you could think of crumbs that way. Uh, they are uh, entirely bread, but not uh, all the bread. And so uh, in our own, uh, you see that at work in the, in the same way that we live out our lives and receive the benefits of Christ through our local congregation uh, and the word proclaimed there to word and sacrament, um, you're going to get, you see that at play with this, with this woman. The crumbs are all that is needed uh, while simultaneously recognizing that it is not all. So I hope that's So helpful. Jesus then, it, it is, it is, yeah, yeah. And so Jesus moves on. He, he, keeps, he keeps going. He's walking by the Sea of Galilee. And you get, we get another one of, of these summary statements of Jesus' ministry. As he continues his ministry, what's he doing? Uh, yeah, he's... Uh, bringing the good news of the kingdom to people who need it. So he is, uh, he goes, uh, he goes up on a mountain and then he starts by healing. 
the the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, uh, and all those who were uh, put at his feet. And so uh, it's a ministry of of healing. It's a ministry of good news proclaimed to the poor in spirit. It's another exhibition of Jesus carrying out his goodwill among the weakest and the least. I mean, who's weaker in a society than those who are crippled and blind and lame and mute? Right? You might think, uh, go, uh, we really need uh, God to go exercise his uh, healing powers upon, you know, the powerful. Go help out the commander of the army or the... uh, you know, chairman of the Federal Reserve, uh, go help our leading uh, philosopher or, uh, you know, man who understands uh, economic in- infrastructure, help these great minds. Uh, that's not what he does. He, he goes to those who are, who are the weakest, those who are brought to him, even. So. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's yeah. healing these people. Right, yep. he he heals the the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute. The people see this. It says the crowd wonders, and they also glorify the God of Israel. That seems to be another pretty loaded term, the God of Israel. It is, uh, it is a loaded term, uh, probably referring to well, I mean, it is God, God of Israel. If you want to think along the lines of anyone who glorifies me glorifies the Father. Um, the phrase God of Israel is a uh, um, is written by Matthew the narrator. So this is not a direct quote, right? Uh, this is a uh, reflection. This is a report of what happened. They they glorified the God of the God of Israel. It's uh, it's a pretty rare title here uh, in in Matthew, but um, this is the ministry of. Of Jesus and the good news of the kingdom, uh, and he is. We just got done talking about um, the woman, the, Samar- uh, the Canaanite woman, excuse me, who uh, speaks to, O Lord, the son of David. Okay, so she's recognizing that the salvation is indeed brought about through uh, a unique people. And uh, and here in this next episode, albeit in a different location, we see another. We we see the same thing occur once again. Um, the sal- salvation is by through the Jews, as uh, other people have said, and I'm embarrassingly forgetting where that uh, statement is found in the New Testament. I'm sure it's Pauline because that's a right. pretty safe bet. <laughs> right. Well, or as you, I think you said earlier in, in Romans chapter one, that it is first to the Jew, then to the Gentile, right? The, the gospel right. is the power of God. And, and so that, that same order here is, is being exemplified. But again, it's, it's not only, even though it goes first to the Jews, it's not only for the Jews. It goes first to the Jews so that it then would go to the rest. Are, are we seeing Jesus doing what we might call Gentile mission here in these verses, Pastor Cook? It uh, could be. Scholars uh, are divided on the issue as to whether or not uh, this is happening. You have the region of the Decapolis along the um, 
Sea of Galilee that is Gentile in nature. You remember the episode of the uh, Gerasene demoniac and the slaughter of pigs um, or the drowning of pigs, um, which are, I think, generally recognized as being uh, in Gentile territory, or we have a bunch of naughty, uh, irreverent Jews who are herding pigs, which is certainly not outside of the realm of possibility. Um, so it, it doesn't specify. Uh, the, the most specificity we get is uh, the reference in the, the next verse that he gets in a boat. Um, no, no, that's at, that's at the end of the next chapter. But we get a town name, which then doesn't become particularly helpful because we are not even sure where that is either. So, um, but uh, regardless of Jew or Gentile, we notice that it is uh, the mercy of God uh, delivered to uh, the people of God, and it's certainly not being withheld from those who uh, come in faith. So as as we begin to see this mercy of God, Jesus, well, as the text moves forward, it's almost like deja vu all over again. We, we come across a very similar account, it would seem, to what we've already encountered earlier in Matthew. In Matthew chapter 14, Jesus feeds 5,000 people. Here he feeds 4,000 people. But these are two separate accounts, right, Pastor Cook? Yeah, they are. Um, they are indeed two separate accounts. Um, any uh, explanation to the contrary is uh, being driven by a natural predisposition to doubt what you're reading. Uh, so it comes from a posture of skepticism as opposed to one of trust. There's no reason to believe that this has to be another story of the same event. Um, Additionally, the number it's a very similar account in many ways, but it is different, uh, including uh, the leftovers, the order of uh, questions and conversation of Jesus, and then just frankly, the numbers are different. They're just they're different numbers, and you know, to be off by twenty percent is not an insignificant chunk of information. So, yeah, um, Jesus uh, calls his disciples uh, to him. Uh, in verse 32, and he says, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And he says, I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they, they faint on the way. So I want to focus on the, I suppose, the compassion word. Um, I, this has been a well-plowed field. It comes from a, a Greek word, splugnizomai, uh, um, but worth pointing out in this particular context is in the Gospels, the only one who has a splugnet, the only one who does this, the subject is always God um, in the Gospels, or a character representing God. Sometimes this uh, verb will show up in parables. Um, but uh, So God has compassion, and here we're actually told why. Uh, in, the par- in the feeding of the 5,000, it just says that he had compassion on them and healed them and then fed them. Uh, here, uh, it says uh, he has compassion and it tells us that because they've been uh, with us, the crowds have been with Jesus three days and they have nothing to eat. So Jesus is not uninterested in um, your daily bread, uh, which is why he bids us to 
pray for our daily bread elsewhere in Matthew chapter 6. And um, he does not want to leave them without their resources. This is also reminiscent of what we saw in Matthew 4. Man does not live by bread alone, but with every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Um, And so here you have a people who are gathered around Jesus. They've been with him. They've been feeding on the words from his mouth. Uh, and now he is also going to make sure they are taken care of in their body. So we won't, don't want to create this unnecessary uh, division uh, between body and spirit, lest we fall into some ancient heresy uh, about the God who does or does not like stuff. You know, we are a whole pot person. We are created by God uh, as a body, so he attends to those needs. So it is his, his compassion that would lead him to attend to those needs here. What about what about the disciples in this account? What are we to make of of their react, interaction with Jesus here, especially given what they've already seen him do in the feeding of the five thousand previously? Yeah, they are not portrayed in being a, in a particularly positive light. Um, they've already seen this occur with the feeding of the five thousand, and they don't, um, you know, they don't seize the day, uh, and uh, say, oh, we've seen this before. This is how we go about it. Um, so they they wonder aloud, uh, where are we going to get uh, enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And um, we don't know if Jesus rolled his eyes when they asked this, but uh, certainly is possible. Uh, and so Jesus just asks them, you know, what do you have? But they they don't say um, they don't approach Jesus with uh, hey this is what we have. Um, they do not come to him with with what they've got, uh, but rather they wonder uh, where will such things be come from, and I think that was uh, significant. In we know that everything comes from God. Uh, so the idea that they would go away from Jesus to find the thing to supply the needs is patently absurd. Um, every good and perfect gift comes from above, as James will say. Um, they've seen God provide uh, in this way before, so they, you know, they just they didn't get it. Which is why you got to teach, and then you teach again, and you teach again, and you teach again, and you don't get discouraged. Um, I joked about Jesus rolling his eyes, but there's no indication that he was discouraged by his disciples' lack of understanding. Um, the the di- disciples not getting it uh, doesn't change the fact that 4,000 people plus women and children need to be fed. So uh, Jesus is going to get to work uh, providing for them. Right. He, he, just, he just takes it, as, as you said, there's no real hint of frustration with them, at least not at this point. There, there will be in the next text, in chapter 16, they're going to be confused again, and he's going to, to question their lack of understanding. We've seen him question their understanding previously in Matthew 15, but, but here he just, he just rolls with it. He, just, he, he takes what they have, which is seven loaves and a few small fish, and then, boy, this sounds a lot like what happened previously, doesn't Pastor Cook? How does the, how does the account go forward? Yeah, he directs the crowd to sit down. Uh, he uh, looks. Uh, he, look, he takes the loaves, the fish, 
Uh, he gives thanks, he breaks it, and he gives it to the disciples. Uh, the disciples, in turn, uh, then distribute it to the crowds. Uh, and they all ate and were satisfied. And then, and then we get the, a nice little statement here about the leftovers, uh, which is what the, the Canaanite woman did earlier, is she makes a reference about the leftovers. Um, and, then, uh, and then we get the identification of the numbers and then the kind of the travel narrative explanation of where Jesus goes from here. So, so yeah. as, as we reflect on this text then, I, I think two, two points worthy of consideration. First, first is the, the, rep, the fact that we have a, a repetition in almost the exact same type of miracle here. What, what's the importance? I mean, it, the fact that Jesus does it twice and that Matthew records it twice would indicate that, that it's pretty important. And then two, after we consider that, maybe draw some connections. The fact that Jesus is eating with people, and there's some language here that may sound similar to other meals, hint, hint, that Jesus has in the Gospels. Let's, let's consider those. So first, the, the thought on the repetition and why this is such a big deal that Jesus feeds multiple people more than once. Yeah. Um, I think you may have uh, asked a question I wasn't preparing for. Ha <laughs> ha. Um, well, no, you can just the, skip the over it if you want. You yeah, I can do that. <laughs> he does... Uh, just answer the question you wanted me to ask. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. No, in general, um, just worthy of consideration uh, because we live in the culture and society that we do. This stuff is being written down before uh, punctuation, right? Before typesetting, before the printing press. Um, or early biblical manuscripts, which is a bit of a pet study, field of study of mine. Uh, no spaces, all capital letters, minimal or no punctuation. So if you're, if you're going to emphasize something um, and you can't make use of an exclamation point or underlining a text or writing in all caps, uh, how are you going to do it? Well, one way that you can do it is you say it again and again and again. So the repetition is... Um, is significant in that way. The fact that the Lord is able to provide for for all uh, for all people um, by His will, right? It's His will to provide for them, and so the Lord is not limited uh, by what's available to us. Seven loaves of bread, a few small fish. All right, He can make that work. What what really stuns me about this miracle. Um, and the feeding of the 5,000 likewise, is within my own imagination, I don't know what it looks like. I can envision Jesus walking on water. I can envision Jesus uh, healing the lame. I can envision Jesus calming the storm. I can envision Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead or rising himself from the dead. It is really hard to envision what it would look like to feed, like, are they watching the the loaves, multiply before them? Uh, you know, do they take it from the plate and they pass the plate and magically there's another one? I, I, I don't know. It's, it's such a mind-bending, numbing uh, miracle, uh, but it's extremely significant in the prefiguring um, uh, and uh, similar worded language of the Lord's Supper where uh, Jesus takes bread, breaks it, gives it to his disciples, takes and eats, and then commands them to do this in remembrance of him. And so it's the same exact order. It's God taking gifts, breaking it, giving it to his disciples. They participate, and then they are the ones who then distribute it to others by doing it in likewise um, 
in in the future. So I don't think so, I think it would be uh, reckless to pretend that this has um, no as though or somehow not in, coincidental to call this coincidental. The verbiage uh, with the Lord's Supper is is literally uh, just it's reckless. So. Hmm. Right. Yeah. This is not. This is not a coincidence that Matthew uses the same language to describe both meals. Now, we wouldn't call the feeding of the five thousand or the feeding of the four thousand the Lord's Supper as a meal, but that that connection is is certainly there. So, what what's the importance of noticing that? Other than, I mean, we're doing more than just saying, "Hey, Matthew was a really good author," right? What's the theological significance of connecting these meals? The one I tend to uh, direct people to is the fact that he is actually feeding this many people with this limited amount of substance, which is uh, there were seven loaves and a few small fish. And through with just these things, he's able to feed that many, that many mouths. So when we evaluate then the Lord's Supper, and uh, this is such an odd I'm going to apologize in advance because it's such an odd question uh, to consider. But if you take all the church churches, Lutheran or otherwise, in the world uh, who celebrate the Lord's Supper, uh, how much bread is that? How much bread is consumed on a Sunday um, among the people of God? In, in on just on any given Sunday, how much is that? I mean, you think it's just a you know for a lot of people it's just a wafer. That's not a lot, but you know we have a whole jug of it here at my congregation. We go through that pretty quickly, and we're just one congregation um, in a you know small state of South Dakota. You just start spreading this out, and all of a sudden, you know, you're looking at uh, I mean, that's a lot of bread. And uh, so the idea that um, maybe a church body uh, denies that Christ is present in the meal because Jesus is only so big and there's not enough of him to go around, um, that doesn't hold water because we've seen him do this twice now. So let's not be stubborn like the disciples and scratch our heads and wondering how he's going to supply everyone with what they need. Uh, Christ's body, uh, though uh, finite, in uh, its, um, you know, you can slap a blood pressure cuff on him and probably weigh him and uh, figure out what his height is. Uh, he is actually feeding people with his body and his. It's the multiplication of himself uh, in in that regard. So that, I like to draw people to that uh, to that connection because I think it's an important um, uh, anchor uh, in the conversation about the Lord's Supper. So, and maybe to, to try to draw a connection to the previous text as well, which also involves bread, you know, the crumbs that the Canaanite woman brings up, the, that which we receive in the Lord's Supper, though it might appear to be a crumb, is actually a miraculous feeding of Christ, giving his body and his blood and the entire fullness of him along with it to all who would receive him. Yes, it's a, it's a mind it's a mind numbing crumb, a mind bending crumb because we call them a foretaste of the feast to come. We tend to think of crumbs after the meal is over, 
right? After the meal is over, we take the leftovers and we have the crumbs there on the floor. And yet here, uh, as we move forward, we receive the Lord's Supper as a foretaste of the feast to come. So it's not a, uh, it's not a, again, uh, to use that analogy of a congregation being holy church, but not the whole church. Uh, you have the Lord's Supper here. It's not a uh, symbol of a feast to come. It is a foretaste of the feast to come. It is of the same feast. Uh, it's not the whole feast, that's for sure. I mean, it doesn't even fill the stomach. It barely wets the palate. But it is a foretaste. It is of the same feast. The thing that really makes your head go uh, wonky is wrapping your head around the idea of, uh, so to speak, crumbs before the meal even starts. Uh, that Was I clear and articulating that it makes so much more sense. Yeah, yes. Mind. Yes. That, that what we receive in the Lord's supper is the same feast. It's the foretaste of it. And, and we receive that crumb in anticipation of the fullness that we will receive when, when Christ comes again in glory and we, we dwell with him body and soul in, in resurrection life. Is that a, a fair way to summarize enough. it? Absolutely. And it's enough just as the crumb for the Canaanite woman was enough uh, and to be desired, um, and to accomplish the purpose for which she desired it, right? Um, the crumb of having her daughter healed. Um, we receive the body and blood of Christ uh, as ones who uh, fully trust that in this meal, uh, Christ is with us, our sins are forgiven, our faith is strengthened, uh, and it's enough. It, it actually does that. Uh, and we're happy to have it. You know, we're not asking for the whole, we'll pray for the whole feast, come quickly, Lord Jesus, uh, right? But we're absolutely satisfied, satisfied with the crumbs. And, and we should, uh, like the Canaanite woman, frankly, we should inconvenience ourselves to receive it. You know, she came out of the city to get it. Uh, and so, uh, you know, Sunday morning rolls around or Saturday night, whenever your service is. And, you know, maybe you need to get in a vehicle and drive to a congregation to receive it. That's okay. Uh, the blessing is that it can be found at all. Um, and so we, you go to where it's found and you receive, uh, you receive the foretaste, the chronologically confused crumbs, if I may, and, uh, and delight in the, the gifts that, of grace that have been delivered to you. Pastor Tim Cook is the pastor at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Millbank, South Dakota, helping us this morning with Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 39. Pastor Cook, thank you for your time today. Glad to help. Appreciate it. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithfield, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.